Australia, you would know that Campbelltown and Bankstown and Liverpool are all the hotspots for this latest Delta outbreak that's got us into this probably multi-month lockdown. And it just so happens with my luck that I work at those exact hospitals, so I apologise for being absent. Our workplace has been a little bit more intense than normal, but that's okay because I'm back now. So this week, we're going to talk about where the market's at. Um, Essentially, the market has been really rough for growth stocks. Um, If you've, my portfolio has gone sideways for essentially the last probably like two, three months. So if you feel like you're getting nowhere, it's okay. That's just what's happening at the moment. Growth stocks, like we said, from like January to February slash March, growth stocks were on a tear. They were killing it. And then interest rate fees came in and they got smashed. Most things are down 30%. So if you, if essentially if you bought in February or March, which, you know, it's likely that, you know, a lot of, new investors did start investing around that time. It's likely that you are down a decent chunk, but don't be hard on yourself. It was just, it was bad timing. You know what I mean? Um, And so everyone's in the same boat. And then, so yeah, growth stocks probably hit a low in late May, early June. And then they've like started to kind of crawl their way back, but not not super fast, not super convincingly. They're still kind of just flatlining. So it's been it's been a rough rough little period for growth stocks. Um, I I feel like it'll be over soon. I think growth stocks, like I said, every while growth stocks have this boom period, and then suddenly they have like a bust period, and then and they come back eventually because at the end of the day investors just love growth they find it exciting and fresh blah 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 so you know keep holding on that the tide will turn um and spacs have also been crushed just just as a blanket rule and and that's what we've said happens when sentiment shifts whole areas of the market just get treated as though they're the exact same so if there's a SPAC you like, now would be a good time to get in or add more because no matter what SPAC you are, you've just been pummeled pretty pretty irrespective of... Because the SPAC world, there's a massive variation in quality. There are companies that are profitable, there are companies that have lots of revenue, and then there's all these pretty much like venture capitalist startup companies that have next to no revenue and, you know... 
that's the whole reason they go public by SPAC because if they IPO'd, they wouldn't be able to raise anywhere near the money that they have been through SPACs because in an IPO, you can't forecast. So if you've ever read any um, S1 filing, which is the IPO filing that a company submits to the SEC before they go public, none of them forecast. You are not allowed to forecast in an IPO, but in a SPAC, you can do whatever you want. And so that's why a lot of these pretty much venture capitalist startup companies are going public by SPAC like Latch and, you know, there's heaps of them um, where they're going public with really little to no revenue because they can go, oh, wow, look at these charts we've presented that show you how much growth we're going to have in five, 10 years from now and their valuations in the SPAC presentation. It'll be like, where this company is currently valued at you know five times 2025 revenue and shit like that like it's it's really cheeky but there are some good quality SPACs like we've talked about like I still think BarkBox is a great is a great company I still think Lottery.com is a great company I still think Weed Maps which is the the we talked about it ages ago um it's come down quite a lot because it's essentially back to where I bought it at. Um, and it's weed maps. It's on the public markets as weed as WM technology, weed maps technology. And they're essentially the leading marketplace for, you know, I love marketplaces, leading marketplace for buying and selling marijuana, um, which is becoming increasingly legal in the US. And you know, that's come down pretty much 50% um, because of fears about how quickly legalization of marijuana will take. And let this be a really good example of that when you get these new areas, we've talked about it before, but essentially when you get like a new hot field, right, like cannabis, where it's like, oh my God, if everyone in America has one joint per day, the cannabis industry is going to be this big. All these small cannabis companies are going to be so big and great. But there's always, always guaranteed to be issues along the way. And I know marijuana seems like, oh yeah, well, of course they'd have issues. It's such a big thing. But it happens in everything. Even Tesla with, you know, if you go back five years, it looked like Tesla was going to, you know, when Tesla went, Tesla had a boom period like five plus years ago where they were like, oh my God, electric vehicles are here. And then it took another five years after that to actually get them on the road. And that's what always happens in investing. A new area will come up, a new industry will come up, investors will get super excited and they will just assume it's going to be a clear rosy path um, from, you know, the company's idea or manufacturing to sales, but it never works out like that. Never. So, you know, always factor that in where there's this new booming industry. I already told us to just avoid whatever's popular, but that's why you avoid whatever's trendy and popular because it always takes longer. There's always hiccups along the road. And when those hiccups happen, those stocks get smashed and then is a good opportunity to buy if you really do believe in the underlying story or whatnot. So, yeah, so that's that's essentially where the market is. This year has been more normal times, right? The, the, the market as a whole has gained in the US, I think, has gained like 15% year to date. You know, it's not an amazing year, but that's still a solid year um, compared to the historical average of about 10%. But if, you, if you're, 
you know, if you had big gains last year, that's great, but that's just not going to happen year after year after year. The market is just never that hot as it was last year. We're coming out of a recession where everything got smashed and, you know, those kind of returns you can't really expect going forward. So if you feel like you're getting nowhere this year, that's all right. Remember, you're still learning if you're fresh to this. Just learn as you go, all right? And like I said, always start out with a small amount to invest if you're individual stock picking yourself. And then as you get more confident, as your results get better, then you can start to invest with more execution and higher dollar amounts. And as you grow older, you know, it's a journey. It's a whole process. Um, it's not It's not just black and white. So the the main t- so that's where the market's at, right? Spacs are smashed, growth stocks have been smashed and are just kind of still flatlining. Value stocks I think have gotten ahead of themselves. I think they're all way overpriced. Clothing, travel, I think they're all far too expensive. And so if I was to invest money now, I'd be looking at the growth stocks that have been smashed cuz you know some of them are still on ridiculous valuations, but some of them are actually reaching more reasonable valuations. Um, and we'll talk about a few stocks that might have popped up on the radar. But, but before we go on with today's topic, which will be about all the different investing styles, I also wanted to mention about SPACs is that <laughs> it's so funny. The reason a lot of people liked SPACs is because they. If you remember, you know, SPACs, they're usually worth $10 a share at the initial price because the SPAC itself has $10 of cash in the bank per share. It's a blank check company with a stash full of cash. And each when they go public, they go public with each share in the SPAC pre-deal closing. Each share in the SPAC is worth $10 of cash, right? And so a lot of people like SPACs as they went, oh my God, there's no downside risk, right? If it's worth $10 a share and I'm buying the SPAC stock for $11 a share, then my downside's only 10%, but my upside could be, you know, the moon, whatever. Um, And that whole theory got pretty quickly debunked because what happens is, yes, the the SPAC stock will never go below $10 a share before the deal is done, but the day the deal is officially done and the the company that the SPAC's merging in becomes its own company. Once that happens, there is no downside limit. And the stock tends to, what we've seen recently, is the stock will just collapse. Because as soon as that deal is done, the whole theory about the $10 a share in cash being a downside is just, it just evaporates once the deal's done and the stock just falls back, just falls, essentially. And a lot of SPACs have been falling down to anywhere from 6 to $8 as soon as the deal is done. Not many SPACs have stayed above the $10 post-deal. Skills has, it's sitting at like $15 after it was at 40 So, you know, SPACs are getting pumped. But that means there could be an opportunity there. Another area that's been smashed just this week are Chinese stocks. So China... I think I told you guys that I don't invest in China other than Alibaba. That was the only Chinese stock I have ever and will ever invest in. And that's purely because the Chinese government is unpredictable, right? I'm not going to get into 
you know, every country's got their own culture, their own political way of doing things. And I respect the way they do it. But as an investor, the, the unreliability or the kind of unpredictability of the Chinese Communist Party makes China for me not worth it, no matter how cheap, no matter how good the business sounds. And so what happened this week was the Chinese government essentially came out and said, we are reviewing every first, they banned for-profit um, like school tutoring companies. So all these Chinese um, school tutoring stocks, which had done really well for like 10 years, like Tal and New Oriental Education, those stocks have fallen about 95%, <laughs> which is crazy because the Chinese government said, we're going to make you all non-profit. Now, the reality is that you know, the rules specifically were that if you're teaching high school or if you're teaching kindergarten to year 12 subjects and that has to, after school, that has to be non-for-profit. But that's only the school subjects that are in the Chinese school curriculum that have to be non-for-profit. But there's all these other subjects that Chinese kids might want to learn or their parents might want them to learn because you know, like English, music, art, you know, there's, and those companies have some strong brand power um, because they're the major players. And so I actually, even though I just said I never invest in China, I made a very small speculative investment into Tal, T-A-L, this week because, well, this essentially it had gotten really cheap but you can't rely on any of the past results because you know some analysts say 50 to 80 percent of their revenue is going to be wiped out by these new rules but so 50 to 80 percent of their revenue might get wiped out yet the stock's down 95 percent so i kind of saw it as an opportunity that you know speculative play that you know they could leverage their brand power to somehow loophole around this whole new rule or still gain substantial revenue in other ways. Like they could, you know, they might teach a science class after school that isn't based on the Chinese school curriculum exactly, but might be loosely tied to it and therefore they can get around it in those different ways. And, you know, a 95% drop in anything should always spark your interest, right? When there's blood in the... If anything's in the news for bad reasons, that's when you want to start looking into it. So, and then China also, you know, started pretty much is investigating every single Chinese tech company that listed in the US that uses data in any form. And so, you know, a lot of Chinese stocks have been smashed. So just, just go on Seeking Alpha or The Motley Fool and just look at what stocks have been smashed, you know, do your valuation, see if any of them are interesting. And just remember that it should be a speculative investment. And we are just about to talk about all the different investing styles and maybe it'll make more sense what I mean by speculative. So let's go into all the different investing styles from probably, we're not really going in any order. I tried to do an order, but it would just be too confusing. So the first investing style you could be is growth. So this is essentially where you invest in companies that are growing, you know, 15 to 20% per year or more. Okay. That'll be anything below 15 to 20% is probably not really a growth company. It's more just like a stable ongoing company. Growth, I call 15, 20% plus. Now, when you're a growth investor, 
right? You could be in two different approaches. One group of growth investors will, they, they call themselves growth at any price, which is, and what they mean by that is they will invest in a growth company and not give two looks at the valuation whatsoever. This approach, I don't, I don't believe in it, right? I, I think in investing, there's two steps. The qualitative, which is, you know, the company's business model and the valuation. You want both of those things together to get really good investments. Because if you remember the double benefit, you know, if you invest in a company, right, a growth company at a low valuation because of some short-term issue or whatever, when that short-term issue gets resolved, the company is growing, so the stock will grow because the company's sales are growing. But then also the valuation will expand as sentiment changes. And so you get like a double hit to the upside, which leads to really good returns. So I don't really like growth at any price. That's not my style, but you know, it works. Then there are some companies that, you know, using valuation based approach, you might not ever invest in, right? It, I don't think Google, Facebook, Shopify, Visa, MasterCard, all these companies, all those companies have essentially been probably too expensive that I would ever invest in, right? They've never really been at a valuation that made sense to me. And so I would have never invested in any of those companies or Netflix. Um, And so I missed out right? Those companies have done really, really well. And so the growth at any price approach worked. What's dangerous about this approach is that it's a very rare breed of companies. It's very, there's a very small group of companies. I've probably just named about a quarter of them. There's a very small group of companies out there that you can invest in at any valuation and they will just continue to grow so perfectly. They will never have a short term. Like, these companies are so their business models are so perfect and they've executed so perfectly for so long that they've always been expensive they've you know even when they did have short-term issues the valuation didn't change much and it's a very rare breed and you know there, there could be a time and a place for growth at any price right like if there's a new kind of network effecty or zoom is another example it went public at like 30 times sales, right? When it first went public at the end of 2019 and then it just continued to be expensive. So for growth at any price, I don't like it, but I'm sure that if the right company came along that had such strong network effects that I just couldn't see losing, that there could be a role for it in your portfolio. But again, I don't think it shouldn't be a frequent thing. And that's the problem with growth at any price is these investors go, oh, we we invest in high quality growth companies and we never care about the valuation. The reality is there aren't, like I said, there aren't that many companies that fit that criteria perfectly and it works out. So if your whole investing philosophy is always that approach, that's dangerous. I don't think that works. So, you know, that's growth at any price. You can use it. In very exceptional circumstances, if you're very confident, go for it. Don't worry about the valuation. Just go for it. But that's that's your call to make. 
So that's one group of the growth investors. And the other group of growth investors are growth at a reasonable price, which is essentially where you actually look at the valuation and you know you want to pay a reasonable price for that growth. Okay, like we've said. And, and the best way to do this is the approach I've said multiple times in the past where you get the theoretical margin, the theoretical free cash flow margin that you think this company will get, multiply that by their revenue, and then you get their kind of their theoretical free cash flow as of now, and then you multiply that by their growth from last year. And that roughly will give you a fair... The, the, the approach isn't completely bulletproof. It's not a golden formula that works. It's just time and time again, I've found that it gets you a very reasonable valuation. It won't get you in at the cheapest point, but it won't ever get you in at an expensive point. And so it's a good way to kind of get a reasonable approximation of where you should be buying a growth, what you should be paying for a growth company at. So that's all of growth. And then we've got value, right? Value stocks are, you know, profitable, big, slow growing companies. Essentially, when it comes to value, you, um, you're, it's likely you'll use... So when it comes to value stocks, I will essentially use a 15... I'll use the low growth formula every time, okay? I will just, for any value company, I will start to be interested when they hit the low growth formula valuation. That's just how I do value, okay? Because most value stocks... Because the low growth formula assumes pretty much the worst possible kind of growth, right? At 3% a year, that assumes like the worst case scenario. But value stocks can tend to trade as high as 20 to 25x. So if you use the low growth formula, you're essentially putting on a 14x free cash flow multiple. And then it can go up to about, and a value stock can go up to about as high as 20 to 25 times free cash flow. So essentially with value, you're trying to get the lowest multiple buy-in price and then you sell out once it rebounds through its short-term issue and goes kind of back to that 20 to 25x premium, right? Which is where the good, strong business model, remember all of this is assuming step one, you look at the company's protection from competition. And so I will start to get interested when a value stock hits that low growth formula valuation. And then if it goes even further below that, I'll add to it and add to it more aggressively as it falls lower and lower. Um, a value stock can go as low as 10x free cash flow, right? That's about as low as a value stock will get, even in the worst possible kind of situation. It will get as low as 10 and it will get as high as 20 to 25. And so you want to just try and get, buy it at that kind of low range and then you sell it once it rebounds up to that high, high end kind of area. So that's value. That's pretty much it. But remember that this is not talking about cyclical companies. So cyclical companies are companies that when there's an economic downturn, they get hit really, really hard. They always have lower multiples. And so for those, for a cyclical company, I would start buying at like a 7x free cash flow multiple, right? Or even lower. No, nah, about 7 is about as low as they go. If times are really bad for them, they'll get to about a 5 or 6, but that's rare. So for a cyclical value company, I will 
start getting interested around seven or eight free, times free cash flow, and they can go up as high as like you know mid like fifteen to twenty kind of area is about as high as they go. So again, you just want to buy it kind of at the low range multiple, and then you sell it once the short term issue subsides and they go back to the kind of higher end range. But like. And this is why I'm not interested in value stocks at the moment because like you look at a lot of values, look look at cyclical companies and they're on multiples of like 20 times, you know, the 2019 kind of last normal good year free cash flow numbers. And it's like 20x for a cyclical, like, no, it's not, it's not appealing. Or like the non-cyclical value stocks, they're at like 20 to 25x. And I'm like, that's not a good deal. That sucks. So value, I think, has kind of gone a bit ahead of itself and I'm just not interested in it, but that's me in today's current environment. So we've had growth at any price, growth at a reasonable price, value with the cyclical and the non-cyclical type, and then you've got dividend stocks. Ah, dividend stocks. So (laughs) I would avoid dividend, not avoid any company that pays a dividend stock, but there's a whole kind of Essentially, in America, there's a lot of incentive, you know, in America, they're just more kind of investing savvy in general. And so a lot of people over there who are kind of 50 plus years old are essentially trying to set themselves up for retirement. And the way they do that is they start investing in dividend paying stocks with high dividend yields. Yields. So a dividend yield is essentially... You know, you buy a stock and it's got a 5% dividend yield. That means that if the stock is, you know, $100, then every year you're going to get $5 in dividends. Okay, 5 divided by 100, 5% yield. So you get 5% a year. And like I said, these, these older kind of people in America who are nearing retirement, they're trying to set themselves up for retirement by building a stock portfolio of dividend paying stocks that gives them so much passive income that they can live off that passive income from the dividends. That's their goal. And so they're always looking for kind of high yield, high dividend yield paying stocks to add to their portfolio. And what happens with that is it essentially reduces the yield, right? Like you never get that massive yield because as soon as a company's dividend yield starts to increase, it will draw in all these dividend kind of seeking investors who will buy the stock, the price will go up and the yield will go back down again. And so the reason I don't like dividend paying stocks is because there are a lot of people out there, that group of older, likely American people that I mentioned, who essentially will screen stocks, will use stock market screeners for the highest yield stocks and just buy those things. And it just, it means that People are investing in this stock for reasons other than the actual fundamentals and they just get drawn to the dividend and they get drawn to the passive income and they completely forget about, you know, is the dividend going to be sustainable? You know, is this company borrow? It's like there are companies out there that will borrow money, you know, they will they will increase their debt so they can pay a dividend. How do you think that's going to turn out? <laughs> like, how is that going to end up? for the shareholders because remember you still own the shares and if the stock falls in half because you chased a high dividend yield you've ended up a loser 
you know, you might get one or two years of, you know, a 5% dividend yield, but you then just lost 40% on the actual stock value. And so you're a net negative. And so I don't, there's nothing wrong with investing in a company that just so happens to pay a dividend. That's an added bonus, but just don't go investing for dividend paying stocks or don't let the dividend even be a factor in your investing decision. Just value it like you'd value any other company. Put in a low growth formula, use a multiple, whatever. Just don't let the dividend sway you because that's what happens, okay? You, you look at a company, it, it might not match up on the valuation and it might not actually be a good investment, but you get drawn in by the dividend yield prospect and so you end up investing in a company that you shouldn't have at a price that you shouldn't have for a divot for a 5% you know, for a 5% is a really high dividend yield in today's environment. But let's say you're doing it for a 5% dividend yield. You've just risked, you know, your capital, right? The amount you've put in. You've just risked all the money you've put in for a 5% a year dividend yield in the best of cases, which makes no sense. So just, yeah, invest for reasons other than the dividend, okay? If it pays a dividend, that's a great added bonus, but don't invest in something for the dividend because I promise you it will burn you more than you know you'll get burned and the the stock price will get hurt more than the dividend will cover and you'll be a net negative so don't be a dividend investor (laughs) this is essentially what I'm saying so that's dividend investing and yeah just value every company like you normally would and ignore the dividend and then if it just so happens to have a dividend that's a great added bonus but don't invest in something because it's a dividend payer because it's a high yield because it just never works out well okay because if a company has a really high dividend yield it usually means i think we've talked about this in the past so the dividend yield is you know if you google it or yahoo finance it it'll be last year's dividend or the most recent 12 months dividend divided by the current stock price Now, what can happen is a stock price, you know, a company might have had good normal times, yay, everything's great, and then they have a short-term issue, which hurts their profits, and the stock price falls. So, but they haven't gotten to changing their dividend yet, because, you know, maybe this short-term issue just happened a couple of weeks ago, and they're not going to report their next results for another three months, or they're not going to report... You know, if you just think about how the maths work, let's say you have the first three quarters of 2021 are good quarters, everything's normal, and then in Q4, okay, so in let's say in November 2021, your company faces a short-term issue, the stock falls. If in at that point in time, the last you know, the last four quarters of your company have been good normal results because the short-term issue only just started. And so you've had good normal dividend paying. And so when, but the stock has just fallen, you know, in half. And so the dividend yield, you know, equation is the dividend divided by the stock price. So if the stock price goes down and the dividend stays the same, then the dividend yield looks bigger. But then let's say three months after, the company reports, oh, we've had this short-term issue, our profits have been smashed in half, you know, we're not going to be able to pay a dividend, and they cancel the dividend for that quarter. You've still got the last 
three out of the last four quarters had normal dividend payments, right? And so the dividend yield will look really high still because you've got three quarters of normal dividend and then you've had this quarter where you've had to turn off the dividend and the stock price has been slammed because all these dividend paying, all these dividend investors have ran away because the dividend's gone and so the yield might look really high. But then over the next four quarters, the short-term issue persists and they still don't pay a dividend, they still don't pay a dividend, they still don't pay a dividend. And what ends up happening is that calculation that you find on Yahoo Finance will eventually have a dividend yield of zero because they'll go a whole year, they'll go four quarters without paying a dividend. So it'll be zero divided by the stock price, your yield is gone, okay? You're a dividend payer, you just went from a good yield to zero yield and the stock price fell in half. So you just lost in every way possible. Don't invest in dividends. So those are the f- those are the main investing styles. Now I want to talk about two other investing styles that I don't recommend doing, but there is a role for it. Now the whole reason we're learning about these investing styles is so that when you look at your portfolio, you can manage your kind of risk. All right, if if you look at the portfolio of Robin Hood persons, you know, some Robin Hood whatever, um, if you look at their portfolio, because they don't know this stuff, you know, that's a big assumption. And I'm sorry if you're into your Robin Hood and you do do your research, but a lot of the Robin Hooders, they don't really do their research. You know, they just kind of, oh, whatever, stock charts. Um, if you look at their portfolio, because they might not know these different categories, they don't know how much risk is in their portfolio. So if they've just got a whole portfolio of growth at any price, <laughs> like, it's not going to end well, right? Or if they've... So that's why you want to know kind of... You don't have to know exactly what category and what the distribution your portfolio is. You just want to be able to look at your portfolio and go, ah, oh, okay, I've probably got a lot of, you know, growth at, at any price kind of stocks. Maybe I should kind of cut the risk down there. Or maybe I've got, you know a lot of dividend stocks and I don't really want to have dividend stocks, whatever it may be. It's just good to know what kind of rough category they belong to. And especially for this last category, which is your speculative investments. Now, speculative investments is a paradox, right? When you speculate, it's not investing. Speculating is essentially kind of guessing about the future. Investing is when you invest based on historical fact right you've done your valuation you've looked at the numbers and you go this company yes there is a little bit of speculation but a lot less so than a full speculative investment where you're just going oh this company is going to do all these different things so your speculative investments are where you don't really look at the numbers and you don't really speculative investments are essentially the bets you make all right and as much as I would advise against having any kind of speculative kind of bets in your portfolio, inevitably you're going to end up doing it. I've done it before. I've made speculative bets in the past where I was like, oh, the valuation doesn't, I don't agree with the valuation. I don't really think it's a sustainable business model, but I still bought shares, right? It was, it was kind of like a speculative bet. I was like, oh, I've just got a feeling or, oh, I see this happening or, oh, So those are the speculative investments and inevitably you will get sucked into one either consciously or unconsciously. What's important is to know when you're doing it because then you can make sure that it's it's an adequate portion of your portfolio. 
right? If you don't know when you're being speculative, you might end up with a portfolio that's 50% speculative bets and that's not going to end up well either. So you can have speculative bets in your portfolio. I'm not, I'm not saying yes or no. I would keep the positions really small. Like I think when I've had, when I was at my most speculative kind of period, I probably had maybe 2% of my whole portfolio in speculative bet, in speculative bets. Okay. And you know, the decision of how much speculative bets you want to have is up to you. Some say you can have up to 10% speculative bets, you know, just to keep it interesting or fun or, you know, just, you know, it's 10% of your portfolio, you know, because when you do speculative bets, you have to understand that you have to make sure that you're not upset if you get a total wipeout. Okay, you have to understand that because it's speculating, because you don't really have a good rationale for making that bet other than like gut instinct or a feeling or whatever, or a futuristic daydream scenario rather than numbers and like more concrete facts, you have to be ready for a wipeout, which is why I would never let my speculative bets get more than like say 5%, because you know, 5%, yeah, it sucks to wipe out 5% of your portfolio, but you know, you could also do much better. Like it's, it's just kind of, anyway, just be conscious of your speculative bets because every portfolio likely has some. And if you're not conscious of where they are and what ones in your portfolio they are, well, then you'll end up getting burnt by them and you know, you'll regret it. So those are all the investing styles. All right. Um, Growth at any price, growth at a reasonable price, value, dividend, and speculative. Your portfolio will be made up of some combination of those. It's just good to know what percentage each group is in your portfolio so you can, you know, adjust them if they get out of hand or if you, you know, you know, if you review your portfolio and you go, oh shit, I got way more speculative than I wanted to, then you can like fix that before it's too late. Um, so stocks on my radar, um, there's, there's been a few. So like I said, I made a speculative bet on TAL, TAL education. Um, and again, I did, I like briefly glanced at the numbers, but essentially I was just like something down 95%. It's still got a strong brand. It's still a big industry. Yes. China have done everything they can to try and wipe them out, but I feel Remember, it's just like a feeling. I, I'm guessing, feeling that they will figure out a way to survive. So that's that's one. Um, I really, I have gotten interested in a company that's Australian called Retail Food Group. Retail Food Group has been an absolute shocker. I think it's down like 99.5%. And essentially, they own you know, some pretty crappy franchises, but also some good ones. So they own Gloria Jeans, um, Donut King, Crust Pizza, and Brumby's Bakeries. And they also own um, Dibella Coffee, like the coffee beans kind of company in Australia. Now, why is the company down 90%? They were one of the biggest, they were the biggest, like they were a multi-billion dollar company about two to three years back, or maybe like three to four years ago. And then they got smashed with scandals. So they were 
I think at their peak, they were probably like a $2 billion company. And now they're a, I think, $60 million company, if that, I can't remember the numbers, but it's something small. Like they've been, oh no, it's a $150 million company. So they've been really wiped out. And the reason was they borrowed a lot of money and then they took advantage of their franchisees which, you know, morally pretty, pretty shitty. They're essentially selling franchisees because um, it's a franchise model, right? So they just, they take all these fees from the franchisees. They sell the franchisees these hyperinflated prices for their products, all these fees for their brand and the marketing and retail food group as the franchisor just gets to sit back and relax while the franchisees, you know, work their asses off to just pay them uh, so the franchise model is really lucrative, really high free cash flow margins. But what happened with Retail Food Group is that there was a big news coverage report about how they were taking advantage of their franchisees and they essentially lost a lot of franchisees. And then, you know, a lot of their brands are kind of in malls, right? Like shopping malls. And then mall traffic was declining as online shopping picked up and, you know, they essentially, the company like went down quite a lot in terms of their sales and stuff like that. Um, and, but I think, I think it's a little bit overblown. Like me personally, I invested in it because I think Crust is still a strong brand. I think Gloria Jeans, as much as I personally aren't a fan of it, is still a strong brand. I think Debella Coffee is still a strong brand. And I think Bram, um, Brumby's Bakeries are, like I think bakeries in Australia are quite... They're in a quite a good position, especially during COVID. And so the valuation, as you can imagine, is in the floor. I think it's on a free cash flow multiple of like five. Um, and the reason they originally got slammed a lot is because they had a lot of debt initially, um, which meant as their sales were declining, investors got worried about them going bankrupt. But the reason I got really interested in this, I've known about it for a while, the reason I'm interested in now is they've sold off a lot of assets and they've raised a lot of money from shareholders that they're actually in a net cash positive position, right? They paid down all their debt. They paid down all their, or not all their debt, but they have more cash than debt at the moment. And so the risk of bankruptcy is kind of dissipated and they've still got some strong brands. And like I said, the valuation is in the floor um, and they're becoming more and more profitable each quarter. They're profitable last quarter, even though COVID has really screwed up their mall traffic. So that's one interesting one. Um, I did an Instagram post about Mad Paws, which is um, marketplace, Australian marketplace, connecting pet, sit, pet owners to pet sitters. And the company's total, it's on a sales multiple of like 6X at the moment. Growing, grew 40% last year, even though there was the pandemic, which meant a lot of pet owners were at home with their pets. So the fact that they were able to grow 40% in a time when, not 40%, sorry, I think it was like 25% in a time when everyone was stuck at home and their business was, you know, the whole business stands on the fact that families need to go on holidays and they need someone to look after their pets while they're gone. Or families are busy at work or whatnot and they need someone to look after their pets. So the company, it's on a decent sales multiple. It's not deadly cheap yet but it's a reasonable multiple it grew really fast despite a lot of you know headwinds like a lot of things working against them and and if you compare it to rover which is kind of the u.s version of this thing rover's sales fell 50 percent last year in the pandemic and these guys grew 25 percent. so 
I think they're just, it's a small company, right? I think it's only got a company size of like 30 million once you subtract the cash that they've raised in their recent IPO. So I think it's a small company with a lot of potential and this could become like, it's not hard to imagine this company being like a multi hundred million dollar company once you know it becomes more established they're also getting pet insurance pet food all on the marketplace where they use third parties to kind of um they use third parties to like actually sell the food and the insurance but they just take a cut for being the middleman look it's a really small company so keep your position you know on the smaller side if you want it's a little bit higher risk um but it's small, it's marketplace, strong business model. It could own the market essentially because of the network effects of a marketplace. And it's so small that the upside potential could be huge. So I really like Mad Pause. Uh, what else has been kind of popping out? Let me just have a little scroll here. A little scroll, scroll. Um, I also really like, sorry, by the way, I'm allergic to, to winter time. And so... If you hated my breathing, <laughs> if you hated my breathing before in wintertime, it's, it gets really nasally and bad. So just FYI, sorry about that. Um, I also really like, it's a company called iSpecimen. Now, again, it's, it's a marketplace. I love marketplaces. And the reason I love marketplaces is because the business model is as strong as a software company. So software companies have these strong switching modes where, you know, you sell a company, a business, a customer, your software, they get used to that software, they never want to change. And those software companies trade at like 20 times sales super, super frequently. But I think marketplaces have the similar sort of strength in their business model, that network effect that got, you know, Facebook and Google so big and powerful is that same business model for these marketplaces and yet you can get them at a fraction of the valuation um, so I really like marketplaces but you know that's me so iSpecimen is a again it's a smaller company a little bit higher risk I wouldn't call it speculative because the valuation is quite quite reasonable um, but it's still small so you know I know size doesn't matter, but you'll know why why I'm worried about the size here. So iSpecimen is essentially a marketplace connecting research labs or research medical research companies, like pharma companies essentially, um, with specimens from labs. So what they do is they collect specimens from labs, right? So if you get a blood test at a hospital, you know, your specimen you know, normally gets thrown out, right? But what iSpecimen is doing is they're saying, no, these body fluid specimens, blood, you know, like wound swabs, whatever, all these specimens of people um, are valuable for research. And so they're essentially putting themselves in as the middleman where they're getting the labs, they've partnered with the labs to collect these specimens um, to not throw out these specimens. The labs send the specimens to iSpecimen, who then sends them to, you know, pharmaceutical companies who are developing drugs and doing research and all these different things who need those specimens. And so, again, it's a marketplace. They are the... They have zero competition in this space, so they're definitely the market leader. They're on a sales multiple of, like, 3x or something really, really low. 
um, and they're super small. They're only just tapping into the market and they've got all these things that are working in their favor, like the rise of like DNA sequencing and liquid biopsies. And I'm sure whatever else I'm going to say medically probably doesn't mean a whole lot to you guys because it's complex stuff. But essentially, a lot of the research into that's groundbreaking at the moment needs lots of specimens. And so our specimens being the go-to middleman for that and at a decent valuation and solid growth, um, I think they are one to have a look at. Uh, what else is interesting? Uh, that's pretty much it for now. Oh, there's one more. Um, this company is called Triteris. Now, I would keep this position small if I was interested in it. Remember, do your own research. But Triteris came public through a SPAC. And essentially... This, this is probably a bit boring and complicated for a lot of you, but I think it's quite quite an interesting one. Essentially, in commodities, in the whole commodity market... Wow, this episode has gone on heaps long. Sorry, I owe you guys a long episode. In the commodities market, right? Petrol, gold, copper, whatever. In the commodities market, right? There's the manufacturer of the commodity and then there's the importer of the commodity. So the manufacturer makes it, puts it on a boat, goes to the person, to the customer, essentially, and then the customer pays them. Now, there are a lot of steps in that transaction, okay? Because the person manufacturing wants the money as early as possible, right? They want to get paid as soon as possible, and the customer wants to pay as late as possible. Because if you can pay later than as late as possible, then you'll have more cash in the bank to invest in other things, in the time that it takes to pay this. So if you can delay your payment, you it like effectively benefits the cash flow of your company. So because of that, because there's this constant battle between the customer and the manufacturer to pay as late as possible, um, and there's also lots of financing steps involved, right? Like if you're going to buy millions of dollars of copper, you often need someone to like, put up the money for you to buy it and then you can pay them back once you've sold the copper with some interest and it's complicated but essentially there's this is where the commodity trading markets come into play right big like banks give money to these commodity traders who act as the middlemen between the manufacturer and the customer and they all take a cut along the way now try this is historically just been not possible for the small to medium size investors, okay? So like I said, the big banks pay the money, are like happy to finance the big transactions and get involved in earning money on the, like earning interest on their money for investing in these commodity trading activities. But what it's, this whole process has, it's mainly paper-based, right? Up until this point, paper and phone calls and paper contracts and because of the costs involved in all the different steps, like the legal team and the finance team, if you want to be an investor in this whole commodities trading world, you essentially need to be investing a lot of money to make it worthwhile because there's all these costs involved in just in in doing, carrying out the transaction. And so unless you're putting hundreds of millions of dollars down, it's not economically worth it for you to put like less than $10 million involved as an investor and get involved that way. So what Triteris has done 
is they've made this whole process electronic, electronic signatures, um, and they've got all these software solutions to mean that you don't, there's not all these high costs associated with being an investor in the commodity trading world. And so what it has allowed is it has allowed people who want to get involved um, so in kind of the under $10 million range. So if you have less than $10 million and you want to get involved, this Triterrace platform appeals to you because you can now get in with low cost and it makes sense. Like you end up net positive on your $10 million, whereas before you had to have $100 million plus to make it worthwhile that you would net a positive out of all this. And so that's essentially what Triterrace is. It's a trading platform for commodity traders in kind of the under, I think they say it's under $30 million actually, not under $10 million. And this might sound niche and ridiculous and why the hell are we talking about this? But platforms, trading platforms make so much money. Think of the NASDAQ, think of Robinhood, Interact, like anything that just takes a cut of all the trading activity that happens on a platform it's such a lucrative business model and you get all these network effects where more traders attract more, like the more people looking for money attract, it's a network effect, right? Like if you're the investor, you want access to the most options of people to invest with and if you're the person looking for investment, you want the most traders to choose from and so it's this network effect and essentially Triterrace has been in the news a lot so this fantastic company growing at like 50 plus percent is on a free cash flow multiple of 10. Yes, it's profitable. It has profit margins of 60%. That's how profitable this thing is. Profit margins 60%, growing 50%, and it's on a free cash flow multiple of 10 to 15. So, right? It's it's crazy, right? It doesn't make any sense. So what is going on? So essentially, and this is why I say it's a speculative play because it is, it's too good to be true. It, this whole scenario, this whole investment is too good to be true, which is why I'm skeptical. I haven't been able to, I've read all these articles, all these YouTube videos, I've read their filings. I can't figure out why it is so cheaply valued. But, and the other thing that's odd is that the SPAC deal, right? It went public through a SPAC and its SPAC price, its SPAC valuation was ridiculously cheap too. And now it's just even more ridiculously cheap because it's gone from the $10 SPAC price down to like $5.50. So the reason it's so cheap is essentially, you should read it on Seeking Alpha and have a look, but essentially this platform was created by someone who was a miner who owned a mining company and so was already in the commodity trading business. And he essentially just created this platform to then give to the customers he already had under his mining company. Now that mining company went bankrupt recently. And so there's been a lot of fear that the bankruptcy of that mining company will make this company, make the trading platform lose a lot of customers. But what's happened, what the market is missing here is that the platform being created by the mining company essentially started that network effect which is now growing more and more all the time and so essentially it the market is scared that the bankruptcy of that mining company will unwind that network effect that it's developed um i personally don't think that's true i think 
Yes, the mining company going bankrupt will help make it lose some traders on the platform, but I think fundamentally it's such an important solution to this industry and the network effect has started going anyway. Like the company owns customers other than the mining company. And so essentially this company is on a free cash flow multiple of 10. It could easily trade at a free cash flow multiple of like... 100 and so there is massive like if you think about it if you found a company that had free cash flow margins of 60% was growing 50% a year it would be on the most ludicrous multiples in the world so essentially if sentiment towards this company changes and if I'm right about you know then it not being as bad as the market thinks it is this could really, I know on YouTube, I always said, avoid the person who goes, this could be a 10 times X overnight, blah, blah, blah. But this literally is the first time that I have ever seen something that could easily be a 10 times gain, like just from a swing in sentiment, because the business is there, right? And they've got a huge industry to go after. Apparently the total industry potential is like $100 billion and they've only just... Like that, this this platform has facilitated four billion dollars worth of transactions on it. Like it's big. Like four billion dollars of transactions is, it's not nothing. Its revenue is small because it takes such a small slice of those transactions. Like it takes a fraction of a percent of that five billion dollars. But then it has these huge free cash flow margins because it's just sitting back while everyone trades and it collects money. So. That's an, that's the last I have to say. This episode has gone on way too long. Again, I'm very sorry I was absent for a while there. But if you're going to hate me for being a frontline worker to keep you safe, well, then you need to rethink who you are as a person. No, I'm joking. Thank you all. Again, disclaimer as always, this is purely for educational and entertainment purposes. Please seek a professional advisor um, and don't make any decisions to buy or sell based solely on what you hear. Do your own research. All right, guys. See ya.